You're listening to Citizens Church Podcast, a resource from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Ever wonder what Jesus is doing? Like right now. Do you ever wonder what Jesus is up to? And interestingly enough, in Scripture, they don't leave it to doubt. In both Romans 8 and Hebrews 7, they tell us exactly what Jesus is doing right now. Look with me at Romans 8. It says, who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. Here's the key, pleading for us. If you wonder what Jesus is doing, he is actually praying for you by name right now. Similarly, using the same words in Greek, Hebrews 7 says this, Therefore he is able, Jesus, once and forever, to save those who come to God through him. Jesus can actually save you. It's not a maybe, it's not a hypothetical, it's not like a ticket to ride and you got to figure it out. Jesus can actually save you from beginning to end. He rises from the dead to live forever, to sit down at the right hand of God so that Jesus lives forever to do what? To intercede, church, which is a fancy way of saying pray on your behalf with God on your behalf. God is praying for you. The most powerful being in the history of all time, before time, outside of time, bigger than the universe, that God of all power and honor and strength and glory forever and ever is praying for you, Shayla, Haley, Clay, praying for you. That's what he's doing all day. It says he lives forever to do this thing until the Lord comes back. This is what he's doing. And for forevermore, he will be our prayer leader and supreme Lord for all the days of all time, longer than any mind could ever conceive. That's what Jesus is up to. And could you imagine what it'd be like to hear him? Could you imagine what it would be like to have a have a a little AirPod or headphones on as you walk through your day and you could hear Jesus audibly praying for you as you pump gas or feed your children or make your breakfast or hit your alarm for the fifth time or remember to brush your teeth because you forgot in the morning, but you're definitely going to get it at night. As you're listening to your boss go on and on and on, as you're trying to to get to know someone, all these things that you hear Jesus praying for you as the things you're actively doing, encouraging you to worship Jesus with all that you have because you belong to him and no one else. That he's always in your corner and always leading you forward. Because that's the chance we have today in this scripture. We have Jesus' prayer. He'll be dead in less than 24 hours from this prayer. This is what he prays between him and God and before the disciples. And it's for the disciples, but it's for us as his disciples further. That we get a chance to actually hear what Jesus is praying for us. Surely he's praying more than these things now, but he's definitely not praying less than these things. And so as we look at these precious words, I want us to see that we've been given three things by Jesus because everything the Lord prayers comes to pass. And he's given us two tasks to complete. 
Jesus starts the passage by saying, Lord, my hour has come. They've talked all through John that the hour is coming and it's not here yet. And now finally it's here. The reason the baby was born to die, it's time to die. And he asked for glory for him, that he would return that glory in his obedience in verse four and in verse five, that he'd resurrect from the dead and enter the presence of the father and share that glory with God. And then he turns to pivot and pray for us. If Jesus himself is praying for himself, how much more should we be praying for ourselves? Not out of guilt, but just seeing the enormity of an importance of prayer that Jesus is praying and pleading. So should we for our very life. Look at verse nine. And as it rolls forward, the first thing Jesus prays for us is that we would be given unity. Verse nine, it says, keep them It says, I'm praying for them. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Our unity is not based in our age, where we went to school, our ethnicity, our sex, our class. Our unity isn't even bound to historical time or space. Base, but rather we are united by belief in Jesus. It's like musical instruments. They don't tune each other by listening to each other play. Instead, one tuning fork is given and you tune the instruments to a single tuning fork that brings all the instruments in to key. I'm sure I messed something up there for the music folks, but it is the tuning fork of Christ that brings unity among his people not the perfect synchronization of each instrument. Even churches, even as we believe somewhat different interpretation of scripture, we're united if we ultimately have our ultimate hopes in Jesus and he's the most important thing because the organizing force of our faith isn't a certain language or culture or theology, it's God himself, which means this, that I have the most important things in common with an 18th century Asian believer more so than someone who doesn't believe on my street. I have more in common with them than the person on my street because if I'm united in the most important thing, then I have this mystical unity that stretches across time and space. And Jesus asked for this unity, but he also asked that we're kept in him. This is verse nine and 12. It says, keep them in your name. While I was with them, Jesus speaking, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus prays that we would be kept. And that's not the same as our idea of safe. Because following Jesus can be dangerous business. As I already alluded to, Jesus would be dead less than 24 hours from this prayer. Nor is being kept in Jesus mean you have a suffering free life. We live in a fallen world and our deaths are coming and our deaths are absolutely certain. But being kept is evidenced positively that the disciples sitting around him quite literally three years later are still alive. 
They've had angry mobs. They've had religious conspirators trying to murder them. And they've had been under a, a cruel Roman rule. And yet they're all here. They're alive. And evidence negatively is this son of destruction. It alludes to Psalm 49.1 that someone would betray Christ, namely Judas here, and that he is not kept because he never belonged to Jesus. But again, in the positive sense, the disciples are alive and Jesus will keep them alive and will keep them alive all the way till they all are eventually martyred for Jesus for their belief in Christ, they will all die. But Christians don't die until Jesus says so. Christians don't perish until Christ allows it. They are kept all the way through their life. And whether it's old age or an ailment or violence or whatever else, Jesus is Lord of our life. When we die one day, each of you, if you are in Christ, it will be the arms of Christ laying you down gently to pass from this world on to eternity. It's not a gap in Jesus' sovereign power when you die. It's Jesus holding your hand all the way in and through the very end, which means the Christian being kept all of his or her life can die at peace, can die without fear, can die at rest, can die knowing the work that God has given you is done as a servant to the great king or you would still be living. See, death in Christ means we will rise again. Death is not the end, but he can suck the fear right out of death. As Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades in his hand, as Revelation 1 says, his rising from the dead defeats death, sin, and the devil himself, so that he is truly Lord of our life. And he will greet us on the other side of death with, well done, my good and faithful servant. Death will always be scary. It's new, it's different, it's unnatural. But with Jesus, the conqueror of death, we can have certainty of the future with him and that Christians only die when Jesus says it is time. As big and as meta as those ideas are, eternal unity with Christ and a keptness in a dangerous world, this third prayer gets infinitely more personal. In verse 13, Jesus prays for our joy. But now I'm coming to you. Jesus is going to the Father, talking about his death and resurrection. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus prays and instructs joy seven different times in this upper room discourse, this after the last supper meal. He encourages them or prays for them to have joy seven times. And you can hear that like be joyful or rejoice, and that can feel burdensome, especially if you're in a low season of life, or maybe you just have a melancholy disposition. Unless we have a proper understanding of what this joy from the Lord is and where it comes from and how this joy works to be fulfilled in you. So I want to help reset our definition of joy so we get to experience this joy greater without the burdensome feeling of, man, does this mean I have to just be happy all the time? No, it's something much greater and deeper. Look with me at what John Piper defines joy as. He says, Christian joy 
is the good feeling in the soul. I love the plain language Pastor Piper uses. It's the good feeling. Oh, good. The good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. God-given joy is that lifting good feeling from God in the heart of a Christian that's produced not by the Christian trying harder, not by the Christian thinking good things, but produced by the Holy Spirit. How's that work? God's Spirit does this by turning our focus and affection away from ourselves. By nature, we tend to just dwell at our life and our hands and ourself in an obsessive, compulsive way. And the Holy Spirit is taking the eyes of our heart, what we care about, our affections, and is pulling our head to go look at Jesus instead. Because when you gaze at Jesus, church, you're gazing at that all-powerful God who's perfectly good for all the bad in the world. For all the suffering and injustice and hate and wrong in the world, you have a God who is perfectly, purely, only good. And for God's Spirit to jerk the head of our heart, to gaze into the goodness of God, and then top that with, that good, supreme God actually loves you. Knowing the worst of us, not the dressed up version of us, but forgiving the worst and looking back in love at you, Jesus becomes your fountain of joy. God's commands to rejoice or be joyful aren't saying we need to get it together, but rather submit under the mighty hand of God to say, this God is good. He is loving me. He is worthy of all my worship. And it becomes a fountain of joy flowing from God to you. To know that God is good and he loves you changes everything from the inside out. And when the focus comes off of us, I know I can get like this. The focus just starts to come all around me. And when the Holy Spirit takes the focus off me, you should just breathe at first a huge sigh of relief that the universe doesn't rotate around us. As sinful as our heart wants it to, that's a weight we can't even bear. Life doesn't have enough pleasure or experiences to make that true, no matter who you are. Solomon in our Lent devotional, as we read this week, this world truly isn't enough even for one man's soul. But when we take the focus off us, there should be the sigh of relief, but then a building sense of joy as we gaze into Jesus, that he is good and he loves us all the way down. This is what Nehemiah declares in Nehemiah 8.10, that the joy of the Lord becomes his strength. And here's the connection between Jesus, joy, and our life right now. Because all of this can feel a little, a little big, a little out there. But here's the hope for Monday. Between Jesus, your joy, the hope is your endurance and faith. Look with me at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It could be a sister passage to John 17. Therefore, since we, the church, those who believe in Jesus, are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. 
So it's saying as we run this race, we should let go of all the things that are distracting us from running after Jesus. All the good things or bad things that are holding us back, and especially the sinful things that ensnare us like vines wrapping around our feet. I think of the Harry Potter novels with that devil's snare is like sin, that it tends to bind you and hold you back. It's saying drop aside everything that's holding you back, run onwards. There's a huge crowd of witnesses. All of heaven is cheering you on. Jesus is praying for you and all of heaven, like they cheered on Jesus in and through the cross, is cheering on you in your life. Think of the stadium of stadium of stadium. Alabama football times a million is cheering you and the church onward as Jesus prays for you. So how silly to hold on to any weights that are keeping you from following Jesus. How silly to coddle any sins in our life that keep us habitually from following Jesus. Wouldn't we do anything to say, I'd rather have the joy of the Lord than keep focusing on me, God, because I want to run as it says. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Only Sarah Ebersold can run Sarah Ebersold's race following Jesus. Same for Joel Park, same for all of us in this room. You are called to run the race with endurance. How do we do it? Verse 2, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion, the one who defeats death and sin and the devil who initiates, he brings this gospel of our faith and he perfects our faith. How is he perfecting it? By pleading with the father, by interceding on our behalf night and day, that AirPod in your ear praying for you. And here's how Jesus endured the cross. Here's how Jesus pulled off the perfect life because the joy awaiting Jesus Jesus endured the cross, disregarding its shame that he was naked and bloody and beaten and looked defeated. Now Jesus is seating in the place of honor beside God's throne. So here's the connection. If you want to run this race with endurance, joy is Jesus's fuel and it's your fuel. Look with me. It says your endurance in the faith will depend on your joy from Jesus, a joy that Jesus can only give. It's the great barometer of our spiritual faith. If we're receiving the love of God, there's a joyfulness in us, even in our lowest places, maybe especially in our lowest places, that the endurance you need to run. This isn't a sprint. It's not a 5K. This is like a triple ultra marathon all the days of our life. It's not about impressing people. It's not about knowing the most. It's not about being the most skillful. It's going to be about finding deep joy from our Jesus. Something the Spirit longs to give us by turning our gaze to Christ and off of ourself. We were not meant to even carry our own gaze. Jesus made you, you're made for Jesus, to gaze at Jesus, to give you joy for the race ahead. Jesus does these things. He gives us the gift of unity in him. 
He gives us the gift of knowing we're going to die on time. We are kept in Jesus, which keeps us. I know I can struggle with big, irrational fears, and I've had to learn to let those go to say, I am kept in Jesus. I can't live with big, irrational fears intervening my thoughts, keeping me from obedience in my life. And finally, we have the fuel we need to endure to the end, and it's joy. It's not even vegetables. It's not like I threw Brussels sprouts at the end are going to get you there. It's joy from Jesus. And we have two tasks, church, two big tasks that fall under this great commission, but he spells it out differently here. And the first is that we would follow Jesus in being sent by Jesus. Verse 14 and beyond. I have given them your word. He's speaking the word, the Bible, this word from God. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus commands and prays for our sentness. Christians have a direction in their life, and it's following Jesus into every nook and cranny of this world because we're sent there. And this passage is often quoted as something like this, that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. And while that statement is completely true, it's incomplete given all what Jesus says. We are not a people of retreat because of fear hiding from the world. That's not what it says. We're not a people of assimilation, just becoming like the world through foolish consumption or compromise. But we are people who just like Jesus belong to God. Therefore, we engage the whole world with truth in grace of the gospel to the glory of God. And Jesus is our great model in this, a Jesus who never sinned, but frequently ate with sinners. He was in the world, but not of the world, yet sent into the world. We have a Jesus who knew he belonged to God the Father so much that he could invite people to follow God yet he was never seduced by the devil. When the devil offered him in the desert uh, worldly power, a suffering free life, to violate God's scripture through a prideful self-sufficiency, Jesus calmly said no, because he belonged to the Father. He knew who his dad was. So it is for us. When we are secure in knowing who our Father is in God, we can rightly engage this world. And this is where I want to pastor us a little bit. If you find yourself forgetting who you belong to, you find yourself forgetting who you belong to, it's probably time to pull back from the amount of unbelieving people in your life or the worldly atmospheres you're putting yourself in. If you find yourself slipping on who your identity is, who loves you the most, then it's okay. This is a long marathon. Pull it on back. Don't let hobbies become obsessions. Beware of things that become, can become addictions. Pay attention to your time, your money, your emotions, your feelings. 
When do you act differently around some folks versus other folks? When do two or three or four different lives of you start to develop? Those are all the signs to bring a friend in and say, hey, can I pull back? I want to confess some things. I want to talk about this. And I, want, I want to put myself in some healthier spots because I think I'm forgetting who I am. And on the flip side of this, if you're losing sight of your sentness, it's time to engage further. If you're losing sight of what it means to be sent by God, then you are in danger of missing God's heart for the world, the very heart that saved you. And the best way to do this is to humble yourself and say, Lord, all I meet is Christians all day long. That's all I want to be around. Man, I need to have a heart for people who are lost or unbelieving. I would say grab a person at our church who's crushing that and just say, can I come along? Can I come along to that book study? Can I come along to hang out with your neighbors? Can I come along to the next time you have people over? It's not that you're like trying to steal their unbelieving friends or something, but just learning to engage people who are not like you in faith to where that becomes a normal rhythm you apply in your life. And Christians can do that together. In fact, it's better together than ever alone. We are people sent and you are sent to the people who are around you right now. There is no delay in the mission of God because the mission of God is always rolling out. God puts you in your family, your neighborhood, your job, your school. And if he sent you there, which he did, that means God is already at work because he saved you and is hoping to save others through you. Think about that. If God has saved you and had the power to do that, and he has sent us, he's already at work in your family. He's already at work in your coworkers. And he longs to use you even more, church. We send missionaries, especially to places of little gospel access, but we do that never neglecting, fully living out our sentness right where we are. And as you engage your sentness, as you need to use your faith, as you have to obey Jesus in this thing, even maybe against the desires you have, as you are choosing to obey Jesus, God promises to sanctify you, which is a fancy word to mean grow holy like Jesus. Look with me at verses 17 and 19. It's the last task we're given and prayer that's prayed for us in this passage. It says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Jesus's will for your life is clear. He wants you to grow up in your faith by the word of God. Jesus is deeply, perfectly clear that our spirituality revolves around this God and his word. And it is what God will use to sanctify or make us holy like Jesus in the truth. Your word is truth. And remember the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is being made right with God by the gospel. Jesus' perfect life instead of yours, his death on the cross instead of ours, his resurrection leading to our new life in Christ. But sanctification takes a lifetime. Justification happens in a moment, the moment we repent and believe in Jesus. But sanctification is a lifetime 
of following Jesus, hopefully looking more and more like him as the years and decades roll by. And the word of God is so important. That's why the liturgy, the worship, the preaching, how we do communion, discipleship, studies, the word is the bedrock of everything we do. If you cut us, I hope we bleed Bible. That would be my hope that the longer you're at Citizens, the deeper you love the Bible and understand the story of God and the truths and the, what has God has given us in this beautiful book that tells us all about this living Jesus. In verse 19, Jesus wraps up this whole section by saying he has been consecrated, which is a fancy word that means set apart for a specific use the specific use the Savior has been set apart for is the cross. It's as if he's ending his prayer, this section of it, with the Father. Hey, Dad, I already know you know this. But the sanctification thing, I'm going to pay with my blood to make it happen. This isn't like a hope or aspiration. I'm going to pay in full and it's going to cost me all of my blood. I'm going to have to die to take these lost people and make a new people out of them who loves us back, that has unity, that is kept for all the days of their life, that is filled with joy and goes after this twin mission of being sanctified to be more like us and being sent to accomplish our mission in the world. Jesus is consecrated, set apart to die for us. These things are not because Jesus has a good vision for our life. It's something he's paying with his very blood for you. God's will for your life is to grow like Jesus. And that is accomplished by reflecting on the blood of Christ and digging into his words. And as we think about this and Jesus' great vision, if we pursue the mission without sanctification, we'll often end up exhausted. We'll even be hypocrites. We'll be the people who want to tell everyone about Jesus and how great he is, even though he's getting smaller in our heart all the time. Because sanctification should make Jesus bigger. Our need for him becomes bigger over time. If we focus on sanctification without mission, usually ends up with Christians in a fearful boredom. They make us self-absorbed and petty because we've missed God's heart for the world and what he's doing. I want you to hear God's will in Jesus' prayers. The next time you're frustrated with another believer or tempted to skip a study or a Sunday or something like that, I want you to hear not in guilt, but in God's delight that God is praying for your unity, praying for your unity to go work it out with that other person praying for your unity, that you would take advantage of every opportunity to go deeper in that unity with other believers. I want you to imagine the next time you feel paralyzed by fear that you can hear Jesus praying that you're kept by Jesus. Bad things can, will happen, but it doesn't change that you're kept, that God has accounted for you in your life and all of your days. A wise person once was telling another wise woman, I, I'm just so fearful for my children. I, it's so hard to send them to school. I'm just overwhelmed with all these things. And the other woman replied, well, they're God's kids and they're never really going to be safe. 
but we can trust God is good. We can trust that we're kept all of our life. I want you to imagine the next time that you feel down, you feel low on joy, that instead of running to food or relationships or trying to impress or perform for others, that you'd say, I feel low in joy, and you would just cry out to God, a spirit who by God's word is saying, I will turn your heart off you into Jesus, which will result in your joy. That you'd say, that's the new habit in my life. Instead of every time the joy gets low, I don't start gambling or start scrolling my phone or start eating too much, that we would say, hey, I'm going to turn to God and trust his word is true and start a new pattern for where my joy and my hope comes from, that he would turn my heart to Jesus, the fountain of joy. Imagine walking into work when that happens again or signing into Zoom for now that you can hear Jesus praying for your sentness, that you go to family reunion or Christmas time or whatever it is, and you know, I've been sent here because I am here and I belong to Jesus and God must already be at work in every single person's life I encounter. Why? Because I'm sent from God. Just as Jesus sent, just as the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends us. Imagine that. There's a little microphone in your ear. And last, imagine knowing your sanctification right now is being pleaded and intercessed and prayed for. That it's okay that we don't have to pretend or perform. We can be the real us. We can let people know the real us. And that includes God, that we can pray big, honest, hard prayers because God wants to use you in your weakness to magnify his greatness in the world. That your sanctification of looking more like Jesus Jesus isn't a process where you become awesome. It's probably a process where we become pitiful and God becomes powerful in our life. We're not here to be Captain America for Jesus. We're here to learn how fragile and loved we really are. That we carry this treasure in jars of clay, not titanium or vibranium. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music, and to Austin Oglesby, who mastered these tracks for us. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.